All right, so we've been in Ephesians 1 and 2. It's taught us many things so far. Uh, one thing above all the things is, is that we're learning about the grace of God. And so again, this is written to a church in Ephesus, a real city on the western side of Turkey. Uh, it was planted by Paul. He lived there for three years. He invested in there. He, he saw the gospel uh, take root in this community. He saw some profound things happen in this community, and then he left. And when he left, there was much weeping. He sent out the elders to, to lead this local community. And then as he's in jail, he writes to them to encourage them about the gospel, about the grace of Jesus. And so the themes that we've seen so far over this letter around grace is, is a reminder of a lot of things, reminder of God's pursuit. We've heard about the reminder of God's love that destined us for adoption. We remind, we're reminded of God's redemption. We were reminded of God's forgiveness. We were reminded of God's promised Holy Spirit. We were reminded of God's hope and God's inheritance. We were reminded of God's rich mercy that chases us down when we are dead in our sins. We were reminded of God's exceeding kindness and great love. We were reminded of God's grace. There was a story about probably 70 years ago. Uh, of, a, of a conference in uh, Britain. Uh, and in this conference, uh, the discussion that was being had was around what made Christianity unique to other world religions. So there's a discussion, not, don't think of conference in 2022, but conference in the 1950s and in, this, in Britain. And so in this conference or around this table, they're discussing what, what makes Christianity unique. So they have incarnation. Does that make Christianity unique? No, there's other deities that came in human form. Resurrection. Does that make Christianity unique? No, other religions have deities resurrecting from the dead. And the way the story goes is, uh, at that point, C.S. Lewis walks in. And he walks into the room, and he's like, what's all the ruckus about? They're like, oh, we're trying to figure out what makes Christianity unique. And he responds simply, and he says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. The thing that makes Christianity unique to every other world religion is the grace of Jesus. Grace. So the title of the sermon this morning is, What Can Grace Do? What Grace Can Do. In chapter 1 through 3, we see a testament to the grace of Jesus coming from the pages we read. We're going to see in Ephesians 3 how grace had been changing Paul. So let's read Ephesians 3, starting in verse 1. It says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can per perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So we're going to break this down. We, we read that he begins by saying, for this reason. So he's carrying everything from one and two. And a lot of everything in one and two, for this reason, Paul says, or therefore, for this reason, he connects the previous chapter to where he is now. So in light of God breaking into humanity and breaking down the barrier of hostility between God and man and between humanity and humanity, he's broken down those barriers. And in light of that, he writes, you know, there's such irony in the fact that he has been sent to the Gentiles. We won't get this. We talked about this some last week, that the Gentiles were mentioned in chapter two, that they were far away from God. 
Remember we talked about the temple, how they were, had this unique space on another tier, another level, a lower level, away from everyone else, away from all the Jews. That There was even this quote I mentioned last week from the Scottish minister who talked about the way Jews hated Gentiles and the way that Jews saw Gentiles as fuel for hell, the fires of hell. There was such hatred and uh, and detest that Jews had towards Gentiles. And yet, the grace of Jesus did something to the heart of Paul. That though he grew up knowing that he ought to hate Gentiles, the grace of our Lord Jesus did something to warm and soften the heart of Paul, that he would spend the rest of his life being sent to the very people he was told to hate. Again, there's irony there, that Paul was sent to the very people that he was told to hate. And so he's sent in prison on behalf of the Gentiles. It says that he's a prisoner. So he's in jail. He's in Rome. He's under the authority of uh, Caesar. But he doesn't say that he's a prisoner for Caesar. He says he's a prisoner for Christ. See, he knew who he was indebted to. He knew that he was under the authority of Caesar, but he knew there was somebody else that, was, that Caesar was on the, under the authority to. And so he wrapped it back up towards the top, and he recognized very clearly that he was a prisoner, not of Caesar. He was a prisoner of Jesus. See, the fact that he was indebted to the gospel, the fact that he was indebted to the grace of Jesus, made him say statements like, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I'm captive to Jesus. He got, a grace had broken through and grabbed Paul, and for the rest of his life, he would speak of himself as a prisoner of Christ. All that I am is his, right? The implications of that, all that I am. I am, I am enchained to Jesus in light of all that he's done for me. How can I not give my life back to him? Think about that idea of a prisoner of war, a, a person who's been captive by an opposing power, and they're under uh, and uh, they're, you know, armed by that, that group of people. But Paul is not a, a prisoner of war. He's a prisoner of, of grace. Not just captured, but captivated by the sheer kindness of Jesus. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. And then there's this theme in this section and the following one that we're about to read of, of this mystery. It's used multiple times in the text. The Greek here isn't saying that you... That's, that we can think of in our English translation, that some mysteries are things you can never know, and some mysteries are things you can know. And in this text, the way that the, the Greek is translated to our language is that this is a mystery that you can know. It's a mystery that has been revealed in Jesus. See, instead of it referencing something that God has, instead this is referencing something that God has done in time. He's made known to us the mystery. And the mystery is that Jesus has come. The mystery is that Jesus has come on this rescue mission and he's brought Jew and Gentile by his blood together, now co-heirs, co-partakers of this promise. This mystery is this, that everything changed when this baby cried in Bethlehem. The story shifted, humanity shifted forever. When that baby was born in Bethlehem, God became human. Everything changed. See, through his arrival, both Jew and Gentile received the same promises and are now co-heirs and co-sharers of the promises of God. 
God is summing up all things in Jesus. Everything is being restored and made new. Whether you feel it or not, you might feel like your purpose is pretty boring right now. You might feel like you're not in the job that you're dreaming of. But at God, you might feel like God is far and aloof, but he's active and he's at work and he's bringing things together ultimately to be restored in the coming and, uh, and return of his son, Jesus. He says that we're partakers. There's no more ceremonial laws. There's no more animals that need to be killed, that the final sacrifice has been made. No more temples for the elite. A wrecking ball has come, and the grace of God has been sent out to all people, all ethnicities, all tribes, and all tongues. Paul says, a prisoner for Christ. Man, what grace can do to a human heart. The grace of our Lord Jesus. It goes on in verse 7. It says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Again, we're going to see some of the ways that grace has begun to change Paul. We see that he says that he's a minister, a minister of this grace through the gospel. See, grace had made Paul a servant. When we truly encounter grace, grace always makes us a servant. When we experience the grace of our Lord Jesus and the way he gave of himself, the natural response for us is that we too would do the thing that he did for us. This is where we see the effect of grace upon Paul. In chapter 1 and 2, we see six times in the first two chapters this mention of grace, and we see it again here. In chapter 1 and 2, we hear about his grace and adoption and in giving mercy and love and the riches of his kindness and the peace he's brought and the way he's brought us near and how he's broken down our religious heart and he's drawn us to himself. See, grace captivates us to live our lives for Jesus. I don't know what kind of grace you've experienced before. I don't know if you've actually experienced the kindness that we've been talking about in chapter 1 and 2. But the kindness and the grace of God melts our hearts. It frees us from trying to prove ourselves to God. We talked about that some last week, that the, the religious nature, what I think it was Martin Luther who talked about how the, the heart is, the default mode of the human heart is religion. We naturally are trying to prove to God, I deserve this. I want to show you. He's like, I'm not interested. When we allow the embrace of the grace of our Lord Jesus to come upon us, it actually enables us to have free hearts and say, all that I am is yours. I can't prove to you that I'm worth anything because I'm not, but because of your grace, I'll give you everything. The grace of Jesus, experiencing the grace, the kindness of God, it, it makes us not want to, uh, it makes us want to please him because of all that he's done for us. It's the song we sang earlier, I didn't even know they were going to be singing this song, but, oh to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. 
What does it mean? The fact that grace has invaded our lives through the life of Jesus. It makes us indebted. We, it makes us owe God not because, not because we deserved it, but because of his grace. It makes us say, all of my life I want to give to you. Paul talks about this grace that's been given. He talks about how it plays out in his calling. And your calling isn't Paul's calling, but you have been given a grace upon your life. It's not Paul that you're supposed to replicate, but you're supposed to follow Jesus and who you are. See, he's inviting us into a journey, and he wants us to follow him, and he wants us to understand our calling. And Paul has been given a grace and a calling, but so have you. There's a story of a rabbi named Zuza. And before his death, Rabbi Zuza says this, In the coming world, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses? They will ask me, why were you not Zuza? And in the same way, we can have a tendency to live in the expectations of somebody else. We have a tendency to, to not be obedient to what God has called us to. But you're called to follow Jesus and who he's called you to be. Psalm 139 says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have been given a grace upon your life to seek Jesus and follow him and what he's called you to do. Pete Cazero says the, mass, the vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. He says we unconsciously live someone else's life or at least someone else's expectations for us. And we're called to understand the grace that God's given to you. You have been set in a specific time in history. You've been set with specific gifts, with specific, specific passions. And God wants to use that to actually um, see this world flourish. The point is that the grace of Jesus invites us into our calling. And then Paul says that this grace has led him to be the least of all the apostles. The literal translation is that he is less than the least of the saints. So Paul is deeply conscious, conscious of his need of Jesus. He's deeply, he understands two things. He understands that he is more broken than he realizes, and he understands that he's more loved than he realizes. And this is the essence of humility. The reason why Paul, the elite, with a resume that's better than yours and better than mine, can say that he is the least of all the apostles is because grace has gotten into his bones. And when grace gets into our bones, we're able to say, I'm not trying to promote my life. I'm trying to give my life away, just like grace has been given to me. See, this dude who was once the elite of the elite, the summa cum laude of his day, he became so captivated by this identity founded upon this grace that as he encountered this grace, it was no longer about his resume that became what made him confident, but it was about the kindness of God. Consider this progression that I found in one of the commentaries I was reading. He's, uh, Daryl Johnson says this. He says, in AD 55, in his letter to the Corinthians, uh, Paul refers to himself as least of the apostles. Seven years later, in 62, in his letter to the Ephesians, the one we're reading, he refers to himself as the least, the very least of all saints. And then four years later, in AD 66, in his letter to his fr dear friend Timothy, he refers to himself the foremost of sinners. He says, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. See, his grace 
gets into your bones. You see a progression even within an 11-year span as grace got more massaged into the heart of Paul. He began to see himself lower because he had nothing to prove. See, grace begets humility. As grace gets into us, as we begin to experience, it's not by my effort or earning, it's by his mercy and his kindness. We are able to give ourselves away, and that's the essence of what Christian leadership is about, right? Like, we hear stories about how Christian leadership isn't really Christian leadership at all, but the way Jesus defines Christian leadership for us is about giving your life away because of grace. Grace begets humility. Grace changes how we lead. Grace calls us to go lower. See, the way Jesus and in grace, uh, Jesus and grace invites us to lead is a way of, of humility. It begets, grace begets humility. There's a story in Mark 10 where some of Jesus' followers come to him, and, and Jesus asks this question, which I think is comical. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And what a bold question, right? Jesus asks his disciples. He knows they're jacked, just like us. And he, and he comes to them. He comes to them, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And James and John, these like wild stallions, come to him, and they say, we want power and influence. We want to sit at your left and right hand. That's what we want. And then Jesus responds. He's like, okay, you have no idea what you're asking for. And he begins to go on, and, and he, he, he says some things, and they say, yeah, we're able to do that. And Jesus says, you're going to have tri- tribulation. I, I can't give you what you're asking for. But then he picks up in Mark 10.41, and he says this about what it means to be impacted by grace. He says, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They're so frustrated that James and John go rebel on them, and they try to become like a, um, what's the phrase, like anarchists, and try to take over the, the, the power that Jesus is they think that Jesus can provide. And they, it goes on in, in 42, and it says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servants. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, grace begets humility when we encounter the grace of Jesus that didn't come to be served, but came to give us what we didn't deserve. When we experience that and it gets into our bones, it leads us to a desire to give our life away and not build our life up with our own resume. We see it with Paul and we see it ultimately with Jesus. See, the ways that grace began to change Paul was through his calling. I'm going to give my life away to these people that I was told I was supposed to hate. And in his leadership, I'm going to be the one who serves I'm going to be the one who gives myself away. And the text continues as we move towards closing, and it talks about proclaiming the unfathomable riches of Christ. I don't know if you caught that phrase that when I read it earlier. And other ways to put it is the beyond searching out riches of Christ, the untraceable riches of Christ, the never-to-be-exhausted riches of Christ. 
And this is the message of Jesus. Is this the message that the world hears from the church? I'm not sure. The unsearchable riches of Jesus. The ridiculous grace and kindness beyond searching out riches of Jesus. Historically, I think that the church's primary message was a get-out-of-hell-free card. I don't know if it was the unsearchable riches of Jesus. There's one that motivates And there's one that leads to shame and it doesn't last. There's one that melts the heart that God would pursue us in such ridiculous ways. And there's one that only lasts temporarily. The design was riches, great riches in Christ that change who you are, how you live, the hope you have, and the the way you define who you are. That's the message of the church. And we have to reset and say, are we being ones who are proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Jesus. I love that statement. I love the reset. I love the the beauty that's wrapped up in that. Do we see grace in the life of Jesus like this? Are we, is this the message that we proclaim? Or have we settled for a shame-based message that isn't going to sustain? The riches of Jesus melt not only the world's heart, The riches of Jesus melt our hearts and melts the religious nature that we have to begin again to say to the point where we say, all that we have is yours. You've done much for me. How can I not respond to you with love and care because of what you've done for me? I love that the... um, the apostle John, one of the disciples of Jesus, he described himself as the one beloved by Jesus. He didn't define himself as the one who loved Jesus. So that comes second. It began with, I'm first loved. I can't give what I don't have. And it was the grace, the mercy, the kindness, the love of Jesus. That's what shapes us. If we feel the primary responsibility that we're supposed to love God first, we're going to fall on our face. The first responsibility is to live in the gospel and allow that to lead to the the great commandment. It's the gospel that frees our hearts to give ourselves to that end. Oh, what the riches of the grace of Jesus will do. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. It's the message of this, the riches of Jesus. They become the song of the church. See, it's through the church that this is going forth. Paul makes it very clear that so that through the church, in verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. That's the plan A of God, the church. The church, not the pastors in the church. The church, not the people that are paid on staff at the church, but the church, the body. That's our message. All of us who are citizens, all of us who are the family of God, our ministers, bringing the mystery to light to others. The church is how this message is going forth. See, the role of the church is to embrace the riches of Christ and then to give it away. Our call is to embrace the riches of Jesus and to give it away. See, many have given up on the church. We know it. We're around. We rub shoulders with people. Some for valid reasons. Some because of the structures that need to be uh, reformed. Some uh, because of a desire to see the church become more simple. 
Some uh, ways that the church has become more Western than like Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm for those deconstructions. I'm for those things. Or better said, I'm for re- reformation in some of those ways. But in the reforming journey, we ought to not throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to the church. I believe that God has great plans for the church, for the local body. I believe the church is still God's plan A to bring about a discipleship movement throughout the world. I believe the church is the dearest place on the earth. I believe the church is his bride who he cares deeply for. I believe the church is a new society that any can join through repentance and faith. I believe the church can still be a catalyst for hope. I believe the Lord has uh, used the recent years of uh, refinement to refine the church. And I have great hope in the church because of texts like this. And we're at a war between light and darkness, the kingdom of uh, the world and the kingdom of Jesus. And we're reminded that the church, our responsibility is to proclaim the riches of Jesus, to make them known to the world. And Paul ends by saying, don't lose heart in my chains. You know, he's in chain, he's, he's in prison in Rome. And he says, don't, don't worry about me. I'm going to be all right. Don't worry about me. Trust in the grace of Jesus. This is even for your good. So friends, what makes the Christian faith unique? Oh, that's simple. It's grace. But we don't want it just to be grace. We want it to be grace that empowers and changes who we are. It's the grace of Jesus that isn't only unique, but it causes deep transformation. So friends, I want to remind us of this this morning. The grace of Jesus. I love the way Paul just beats this reminder. The first half of a letter. I mean, if you had one shot to give some information to a church you loved more than any other church, what are you going to tell them? Paul spends half of the time reminding them of the grace of Jesus. It's that important. It was that important that he wanted to make sure that they reset upon the grace of Jesus. So for us this morning, I want to remind us, grace changes us. It frees us. You don't have to live for the pressure that this world offers, that we all feel. We can be liberated in knowing that God has pursued you, not because of you, but in spite of you. And that's humbling, but it's liberating, because it's not on you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blesses with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not because of you, because of God's grace. Because of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, as we move towards partaking in communion, I pray that this would be just a reminder, be a a drumbeat in our soul of your pursuit and care. Help us to become aware of your presence in this moment. In Jesus' name.